Hello, everybody, and welcome back to We've Got Mail. Lovely sound effect. Thank you, Whitney. You're quite welcome. Yes, I did that right here with my wind chimes. It's actually a harp. My wind harp. When you hear this sound, turn the page. <laughs> Quite now to find that sound. <laughs> you jerk. To introduce yourself, William. Anyway, my name is William Bibiani. I am a film critic, and everybody calls me Bibbs. Uh, my name is Whitney Seibold. I, too, am a film critic. Uh, when you write into this show, you can call me Rockmeister McCool. But that's it. Only uh, time. I, I was uh, sort of modest and embarrassed about the nickname until uh, somebody has actually written in to uh, call me out on that. Evidently, what, I'm being embarrassed? Uh, no, on uh, on me being modest, because there is an old episode where I actually asked people right in and call me that. <laughs> this, is not, this is not something I, I recall doing, but it it, sounds it's, like it's, you. A, it's, a, it's my bed and now I have to sleep in it. Yeah. So. Stupid bed. Uh, but yes, uh, William Bibiani and Whitney Seibold, a.k.a. Rockmeister McCool, we're here to answer your letters. This is the podcast where you get to drive the conversation and... Uh, Via email. We will answer all of your questions. We will address all of your concerns. We will take your criticism. We will spin way off topic on whatever topic you'd like us to start on. Yes. And, of course, you can email us at letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. That is the email. Uh, And uh, we do not like uh, unnecessary delays. We just like to jump right in because this is your time. Whitney, who is our first email from? Our first email is from Jason. Hi, Jason. Hi, Jason. Not Jason, like Jason Voorhees. No, no, Jason and the Argonauts. Ja- oh, that Jason. I hope you find your missing sandal, Jason. <laughs> and and that golden fleece. Uh, hey, Bib Daddy and Regent Lord Chancellor Rockmeister McCool. Oh, when did you get a new job? Um, Works so scarce right I, you now. Know, you know, just you got to pick around on LinkedIn and you'll find the, those yeah. Regent Lord Chancellor jobs just waiting for you. Dime a dozen. Uh, Jason here, longtime listener, first time emailer. Oh, well, hello. Good to hear from you. Yeah, um, I've been meaning to email you boys for a while now, so I need to quickly point out that Lethal Weapon is the best non-Christmas action movie, though I may be biased because my last name is Riggs. Suck it, die hard. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, also, the Norwegian black metal trolls would not hang out with the hard rock trolls. <laughs> this, <laughs> this is in response to our trolls. Our, our trolls were, yeah, we, we were, uh, I was sort of whinging that the hard rock trolls weren't, like, hard enough. No, no, they're not. Like, they're, they're, they're singing scorpions and heart songs, which, you know, are hard comparatively mm-hmm. to, like, some mainstream pop. But they're no merciful fate. Yeah, they're no merciful fate. They're no, um, <laughs> they're no cradle of filth Mm. uh, or any of those, you know, black metal bands that you heard about. Uh, The fact that Disney plus doesn't have the 100 lives of black Jack Savage is comparable to a war crime. Wow. And yes, Whitney, uh, an Eddie, the head movie where Eddie has to fight the Megadeth guy would be fucking rad. (laughs) Make it happen. Yeah. Iron Maiden and Megadeth need to get together and have a rock battle concert. That would be really cool. Uh, now that I finally got all that got all that out, before getting to my meaty question, here are two recent Whitney quotes I wanted to bring back up because they always made me chuckle. Quote, everyone can use a little beefcake now and then. <laughs> <laughs> and then my favorite, R2-D2 is an omnisexual hedonist. <laughs> that would be a good shirt. Uh, put those both on t-shirts. <laughs> R2-D2 uh, is an omnisexual hedonist. Is a really good... <laughs> And it should just be a picture of R2. R2, not like, doing anything. No, 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 no. Not like glammed up, not or like covered in covered lube. Up. Like, no, he's just, 
R2. R2. Maybe maybe that shot of him smoking from that one PSA. Oh, there he was holding the cigarette. Yeah, that that's the pincer. one thing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I always knew R2 was a freak. Anyway, I rewatched Conan the Barbarian right before your Fantasy Iron List episode not Ooh. too long ago. It has been a while since I watched it, and on this revisiting of the film, I wondered to myself, are the original Conan films racist or oddly progressive? I asked this as someone who worked on a comic in a comic book store for five years and absolutely loved the Conan and read Sonya comics. Mm. Conan and his creation was originally a masculine ideal or an ultra-buff sold ultra buff sword wielding badass and red sonia while may be a figure of female empowerment and lady badassery was originally just the masturbatory fantasy of frank thorne who had a thing for sword wielding redheads with large breasts well yeah um this is true i mean that's undeniably Um, a part of it yeah uh schwarzenegger embodied the white mask white masculine beefy fantasy for the film but the ancillary characters including the villain played by james earl jones were female or non-white the mythos of conan draws a lot of inspiration from the steppe cultures or the far east and much of the character design is likely taking from that. Upon viewing the film, I couldn't decide if these cultures were being respected or if it's another example of appropriation that cis white boys seem so fond of doing. Uh, the fact that Conan is from step culture and called a barbarian is a bit racist to begin with. True. That probably barbarian just is a word that existed for Romans to talk about Germanic peoples. Yeah, yeah, Barbarian yeah. actually was like, the Romans were saying, I can't understand what they're saying. All they say is bar, 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 yeah. So it's a racist term, but it's just lost a lot of meaning. Over the centuries. Over the thousands yeah. of years, yeah. Um, but, but the fact that Conan's from step, step culture and called a barbarian is a bit racist to begin with, and that probably just stems from Western Christian society deeming such cultures as the Mongolians, the Turks, or early Persians to be barbaric when in fact they were extremely progressive and advanced. Yeah. The Mongolian Empire survived hundreds of years and was only weakened by a pesky pandemic in the 13th and 14th century, similar to the shitstorm we're in now. Mm. Sorry, I'm flexing my history sociology degree in there, but flex your degrees. Oh my god. Oh my god. I, Write I, in and be as brainy as you possibly can. My sister. Uh, had to put had to take me to school once she was mm. just i was like talking to some of her friends i was visiting her mm. when she was living in seattle and uh she was um i was talking about movies and stuff and i was like you know what i you know but what do i know I and mean, she's like you have a degree in this and yeah. i'm like shit i do have a degree <laughs> i actually am allowed, i actually am allowed to have an opinion yeah. okay yeah so if you got a degree by all means say what you want just we're, we're yeah. living in a you, culture where like a, a lot of authority is is considered a little bit gauche and you know people are are welcome to share a voice and you know i, I say just be a snob if you got the you know how well, just there's do a difference it. Um, between talking about what you know about and mm-hmm. being a snob I know, but I, I'm, I, I think snob should be taken back. I'm on record okay. with this. Anyway, um, with this being a fantasy world, though, it's fair to say that the Conan comics and films are creating their own worlds inspired by these different cultures, question mark. Or are they being used as a racist backdrop for our beefy white dudes to kick ass in? Curious to hear your thoughts. Thank you for all you guys do. I hope you're staying well. Life is tough for everyone right now, but hanging with you guys has been something I can really look forward to. While I'm an essential worker, brewing beer wow. for all of the hopheads. God bless you, yeah, sir. A lot of people are uh, relying on you right now, Jason. Uh, as my birthday just passed, I treated oh, myself birthday. to a Patreon subscription uh, for you two. And as a thank you for anything to lend a hand in this time of the Upside Down, stay shiny, friends. Jason. Jason, thank you very, very much for that great thank letter. Thank you so much. Um, yeah. Lot you cover a lot of stuff here, but let's just keep uh, focused on Conan. Mm-hmm. Uh, Conan uh, is well. Let's just be fair. Conan was uh, created in a racist time. Uh, Conan. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, Robert E. Howard was a contemporary of H. P. Lovecraft. In fact, they were pen pals, uh, and a lot of their work doesn't pass the uh, whatever not racism test you want to <laughs> you want to throw at it. Uh, but when you talk about the Conan movies. 
kind of, yeah. I mean, parts of it are definitely racist. They're certainly playing with a lot of archetypes. Mm. Mako is playing an over-the-top archetype. Um, there are a couple a of... Stereotype, be fair. Okay, uh, stereotype. Yeah. Yeah, I was using them kind of interchangeably, but okay. yes, fair enough. Um, however, there is some... Uh, uh, there are some elements that don't entirely play into that. Uh, Jerry Lopez plays mm-hmm. a Subatai, who is uh, the thief who teams up uh, with Conan. He, yeah. He's a heroic character who's uh, portrayed very positively, or at least as positively as Conan is. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not totally cut and dry, everyone. I mean, and of course, um, mm-hmm. oh, who plays um, Valeria? Sandal Bergman. Oh. Oh, Kendall okay. Bergman is, is a yeah, very positive female remote. character. She's, if anything, she's cooler than Conan. Oh, <laughs> I think yeah. even Conan appreciates this. Um, I think so, Conan the Destroyer is the more progressive of the movies. Um, well, and even then, Grace Jones is playing into a lot of stereotypes as well, and so is Mako. Oh, I mean, but, you know, Grace Will Jones... Will Chamberlain's is, a bad guy. Grace Jones is just as ba- more so a badass than Conan. Oh, so, I love Grace um, Jones. Yeah. I think she. I actually think she's giving all to that movie, but I do believe that she is, in some respects, being somewhat fetishized she, she is, in that she's, film. She's presented as, you know, quote, exotic. Um, yeah. Uh, Which we say with an eye roll, yeah, just to yeah, be clear. Yeah. Uh, I, I, you couldn't see the, the air quotes. Um, but I, I, because it takes place in sort of the Dark Ages, mm-hmm. it sort of takes place in a fantasy world. And yeah. those fantasy worlds are very much, um, I mean, we've got to say it, a European extrapolation. Yeah. Look at the sort of what we think of as the fantasy genre. It's medieval England, more or less. It's, yeah. you know, knights errant and... Uh, you know, the humans are always dressed in suits of armor and are riding horseback. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, even though there's like elves and dwarves and hobbits and shit, uh, mm-hmm. there's – this is very much a very specific part of European history yeah. that is being explored. Uh, and even and even the other more popular realms, mm-hmm. Greek. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're Mediterranean, but it's still a very Western yeah. so point of view. You could say that uh, the fantasy genre in general uh, is – based solely on white culture. So whenever there's well, even when or at least white perception white, of white other per, cultures. white perception it's, of it's other based cultures based on a white POV um, generally. Also I should say white cultures plural like yes. cultures that are historically white. Um this is a big can of worms, let's just be clear. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, so sorry if that was a, a little yeah. uh, blunt, but um Yeah. is Conan the Barbarian racist? I think it comes from sort of a, a stereotype an idea of stereotypes, like a set of stereotypes mm-hmm. that has just sort of been grandfathered in over several generations yeah. of this type of storytelling. I, I, uh, are the makers of Conan uh, exoticizing non-white characters? Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the the, vil- the villains are women and not white people. Yeah. Uh, is and 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 uh, mm-hmm. homosexuals don't get treated terribly well in the first Conan either. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the ways that Conan is able to infiltrate. James Will Jones's cult mm. is to basically come on to one of the priests who then decides to abuse his power by sleeping with Conan. Oh, yeah, it it yeah, doesn't yeah. go through because Conan hits him on the head, but yeah, yeah. it's yeah. it's not exactly positive. Because Conan couldn't be gay. I feel That's... like Conan could be very gay. Uh, he he should. If there was a scene where he just like kissed that guy around in the face, yeah, sure, go for it. Yeah, no, no. that that he he hit the gay character. That's, I know. That's the uh, oh, well, it's a good thing he's got a case of the nut gays. Uh, yeah. Jesus, <laughs> that's a term I borrowed from Red Letter Media. Oh, okay, where I've they, heard that they, one. they uh, 
there are a lot of once you start noticing, you can't stop. There's a lot of instances where characters' sexuality isn't really mentioned. Like mm-hmm. who they're going to have a romance with isn't a problem. But the screenwriters are always careful to throw in like one line of dialogue or something to establish that they're straight. Yeah, it's like, oh, uh, my wife wouldn't approve of this. Oh, he he has a wife. It's like so, it's yeah. like when you're talking to someone new, and you know, it's just like, just so we're clear. I do have a significant other. Mm. You try to throw that in at some point if the conversation starts getting too personal, just yeah. so everyone's on the same or, page. Or if, or if like somebody's getting really flirty, and that's like, what yeah, a screenwriter will do, yeah. just to assure people who might freak out in the audience mm. that this character whose sexuality really isn't a big yeah. deal uh, is uh, straight. Yeah. I, so uh, uh, great. But I think you know you, you used archetype and stereotype interchangeably. But I think there's actually an important distinction to there be made is. between You're those right. two. Um, uh, does Conan the Barbarian trade on stereotypes? Yes, it Very does. Um, but more than that, I think it's trying to t- uh, trade on archetypes. That is the, like the Jungian thing, mm-hmm. where it's going for kind of a, a shared cultural memory of what a Dark Ages warrior might be. But specifically a Western culture. Specifically a Western culture. Yeah. yeah so is, it's, that, that's that's that, that's where I think that's a so, good point. That's where the line is. Where on some level, I think a lot of this is perhaps unintentional or subconscious. Yeah. Um, but uh, I think it's undeniable that it kind of built into the framework of Conan mm. is... Uh, Western and particularly in some cases backwards ideas of other cultures. So mm-hmm. kind of, I, I, I can still watch Conan. There are certain movies which when you watch them now, they're so mm-hmm. ingrained in backwards ideologies that they're just, they look like it peak into an alternate reality where everything's fucked up. Yeah. Conan, it may be a little, but I can still watch those and, and enjoy them. Mm-hmm. So I think, uh, you, you still every once in a while notice, yeah, okay, that's not great. But mm. generally speaking, I think the movies are good enough and not like hateful. Yeah. So yeah, I I think it's I I find Conan okay. However, your mileage might vary. If anyone watches, in particular, we're talking about the Schwarzenegger Conans, not the Jason Momoa Conan, which I don't even remember well enough to tell you if it was racist <laughs> or not, because it really made very little impression on me. Um, but if anyone remembers these movies, the movies in particular, not the short stories or the comics, but the movies, if anyone had a particularly strong mm-hmm. reaction to them uh, in regards to how they portrayed uh, race. Mm-hmm. I think it's fair to say on some level they're pretty sexist, but in yeah. regards to the race, uh, if you have a more nuanced or more personal take, we would love to hear it. I feel like dealing with sort of big ancient archetypes uh, when uh, we're living in a world that is trying to get as progressive as we can, mm-hmm. uh, it, it can be a little sticky. Um, yeah. Because sometimes you can play into an archetype that the audience can openly acknowledge might be a little sexist, might be a little racist, but we're kind of okay with a few things. Uh, like the, I, I know there was the, a bit of controversy with Doctor Strange. We've mentioned it before, yeah. where they there was they were kind of in the, a losing scenario because Doctor Strange had this mentor who was a, a wise old Asian man with you know ancient Chinese secrets, and that's a stereotype, a stereotypical character. Yeah, and so you can either. Cast an Asian char- uh, an Asian actor mm-hmm. to play this stereotypically Asian character, mm-hmm. or you can do what they did, which was okay. We're actually going to recast them with a white actress, kind of play with that stereotype a little bit. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you're you're, you're erasing an Asian character. Yeah, so, you're denying a person uh, of color work. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. Mm, it, it was kind of a losing situation. Well, but for the them. point is that that's my point. It's mm-hmm. ingrained into the text. 
So yeah, you and, have to deal with it well, one way or another. Well, here, and here's the thing. might not be... What we need to start doing is questioning the text. Yeah, exactly. We don't need to make a Conan the Barbarian movie. That's true. We don't need to make a Doctor Strange movie with that character. Just change it. Change yeah. the character. Erase the character. If he goes on some sort of vision quest and figures it out himself. People are you know, way it's... too hung up on fealty to source material. Yeah. They really, yeah. And, which is not and, to say that that's not always, that that can't be a good thing, but movies have to change. They have their and own language. Yeah. They have their own language. They have their own storytelling language. They have their own uh, rules and eccentricities. But also, as we retell stories, mm-hmm. we need to keep them relevant for today and sometimes that means dropping something that no longer plays and maybe should never have played Mm -hmm. and dropping it like a stone just dropping it like and just kicking it away like whoa that was a mistake and we move right the hell on Mm -hmm. and even if it's not like a a cut and dry thing like the ancient one where he was a positive character but was such a stereotype that would have really been called out anyway uh it's not always easy but sometimes we do just need to figure out some new path yeah yeah. and i wish i had all the answers to that i really do i wish it was because sometimes it's simple and sometimes it's you have a choice of either doing the the adaptation or not yeah well i mean we we, uh, generally speaking i would say not but we're we're white guys so we have all of these sort of like medieval uh iconography to sort of draw from Mm. that we've been raised with and Suggesting that we need to sort of do away with a lot of those myths is, uh, you know, not something that is going to sit well with a lot of people. No, um, but I'm actually fine with it. Um, yeah. If we, if we, <laughs> listen, it's okay to burn stuff down from time to time. It happens in Keep history me, uh, all the time. Most books, most mm-hmm. plays, most works of music. Maybe they're still available. Many of them vanish to history. The ones that are still available, many of them never mm-hmm. find an audience or lose an audience over time. There are hit movies mm-hmm. from pretty much every decade you can think of, including the 2000s, that you talk about them today. People are like, that was a movie? Yeah, I, I wasn't aware of that. Yeah, yeah. It was a huge hit. Right? Yeah, there's a lot of huge mm-hmm. hits that just people don't talk about it the, anymore. The highest grossing film of 1987 was? Three Men and a Baby. Three Men and a Baby. Yeah. I yeah, know that because that's weird trivia, yeah, but, but yeah. Where, where's the nostalgia for that? Yeah, you know, where's that reboot? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nope, nobody cares about the comedies. Yeah, It's all the action crap, and I know. fantasy stuff. I know. That's a really, really great question, yeah. and it's uh, a complicated question, and I hope we discussed it uh, in some detail. But again, we are two white guys who are doing our best, Yeah, yeah but yeah. that comes with limitations. So I hope we could at least have the conversation, and if anyone wants to contribute to that, we'd love to hear from you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, let's move on to the letter. Especially if you're not white. I'd love, yeah. love to hear from yes. you. Yes, um, exactly my point, yes. Um, here's a letter from Adelaide. Hello, Adelaide. Hi, Adelaide. Um, hello, Mr. Beauty and Mr. Beast. Thank you. I'm writing this immediately after finishing your last letters episode on a mention of In the Heights, and it inspired a question in me. As I've gotten relatively older, I've fallen more and more in love with musical theater, hmm. where I find myself waiting to default to watching low-quality camera rips of Broadway musicals <laughs> rather than my tons of DVDs that I own and haven't seen. Uh, following the recent success of the musical genre f- in film, with La La Land, The Greatest Showman, and the masterpiece that is Cats. Uh, and even the... In- I-, I sense your facetiousness. Um, <laughs> I don't. I think and, it's and totally even, unironic. And even the inspiration in independent filmmaking with movies like Anna and the Apocalypse and The Lure. Oh, golly, The Lure. Um, <laughs> I'm wondering what the future of musical filmmaking is. Uh, my question for you is, how do you, how you see this going? Does Hollywood post-Mad Maxian Apocalypse lean more into Broadway adaptations or original musicals written for the screen? 
Also, are there any Broadway musicals you see as prime for the big screen? I think Stephen Chbosky's Dear Evan Hansen is next in, uh, next in line following Wicked. But mm. after that, the field is wide open. The current Broadway hits of Beetlejuice and Six uh, seem out of the popular filmmaking trends. So what's next? Sorry for the long-winded email. That's not long-winded. No. Um, I can't wait to hear your response, Adelaide. Uh, um, okay, well, first off, uh, uh, I cannot keep up with contemporary musical theater. I cannot afford to. Mm-hmm. And uh, I can listen to soundtracks, and mm-hmm. sometimes I do. Sometimes I've heard some soundtracks of newer uh, musicals, but uh, I can't see them. Yeah. So well, I don't have a lot, a very informed opinion. I've never seen Wicked. I've heard Wicked. Okay. But I've never seen Wicked. Uh, my my wife and partner Michelle was recently playing uh, the soundtrack to Matilda. Okay. Which okay. has a great soundtrack. It sounds mm. like it'd be a really good movie. Like even better than the Danny DeVito film, which I think has flaws. Mm. Uh, mostly, it's good. I think I just wish it had been set in Britain. Um, yeah. it, may, it makes more sense over there in a lot of ways, but um, the, the the evil like Dickensian boarding school yeah. it makes less sense it's in not, America. It's not really yeah. an American thing. That's a more British yeah. trope. But uh, regardless, I would love to see that, for example. But um, and and for the record, later this year, in addition to in the Heights, which I hope comes out sooner than later, mm-hmm. but who the hell knows. Uh, we're supposed to be getting a theatrical release of Hamilton, mm. which is uh, a production of uh, uh, that they filmed an actual live production of it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which doesn't it's not have... one of those fathom events. Is no, it? no, no, no. It's oh, not a fathom yeah. event. It's a it's a legit release, but it was filmed on the stage. I'd, which... rather, I'd rather have that than a, a film version. You know, I I mean, I think it could work as a film version, but I mm. also think it might. When you start cutting around and showing more things that are discussed on camera, it might just distract from the incredible language Mm. of Hamilton. So the stage production might actually be the best way. Um, It's been done before Mm. and not just in Fathom. Uh, There's a really good movie they made out of the musical Zoot Suit. Uh, which is mm. all filmed on the stage. I, I, I very stylish. Yeah. Oh, it's great. We had to watch it um, in high school. And I yeah. changed my life. It was well, great. We, we did that with uh, Ingmar Bergman's version of The Magic Flute. Ah. Uh, Mozart's opera, The Magic Flute. Uh, Ingmar Bergman staged one, and then he filmed the stage production. That's cool. But he kept the camera really close, so the characters were sort of always in frame. But it's an opera, so they're all singing. Mm-hmm. And occasionally he would show like reaction shots of the audience, kind of looking kind of pleased with what's going on on stage. <laughs> it's, it's actually really quite a good film. I prefer it um, if we don't see the audience generally, but that's a personal sense of taste. Yeah, well, he, he wanted to sort of I'm the audience. I don't, yeah. I don't, I'm not looking around like, did yeah. that please you? Um, I've, I've whined a lot about how Hollywood just doesn't do musicals right. Uh, that's I not to say they've never done musicals th- right. No, and there, there was a time when uh, Hollywood did do musicals right. You know, all Often. The, you know, Cabaret, Oklahoma, uh, Guys and Dolls. Yeah, 1930s through the yeah. 70s. Yeah, sometimes pretty good. Sometime around, <laughs> musicals. Yeah, sometime around the 80s, they just sort of lost the knack. Right after Greece, they said, fuck it, we're going to stop trying. And yeah, then they, well, what, but, oh. one exception, Greece 2, which is better than Greece. Yes. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. The music, I, I hate Greece. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't hate Greece. I find Greece frustrating in oh. a lot of ways. I think the music is better than in Greece. Mm-hmm. But the movie is better in Greece too. Fair, right. yeah. That's how I feel about shock treatment. The music is better in shock treatment. <laughs> but the, the movie's but, a mess. But the but, movie yeah. sucks. Uh, well, it doesn't suck. I enjoy it, but it's not. It's not well produced, movie, yeah. and there's a lot of practical reasons for it. So, Rocky Horror is the better film, mm. but I actually argued that the sequel Shock Treatment has better music. Yeah, yeah. If you want to hear you know us what? talk all about Rocky Horror, I think it, we've got an upcoming episode of Suddenly Soundtracks uh-huh. on YouTube in like two weeks. Uh, so yeah, keep on the lookout for that. We'll tweet about it. It's really fun. We'll, we'll spread word. Um, yeah. 
1980, I think, was the downfall of the musical because we had a one, two, three, four punch of shit. Uh, <laughs> uh, I know. I can think of three. What's the? What's the? Okay, so there's the apple. Well, j- which no, I've never seen. Not necessarily bad. Just sort of weird things that people didn't know what to do with. We had three disco so musicals was, in a row. Yeah, there we was had the, the, there was the apple. There was yeah. Xanadu. There was Can't Stop the Music. Uh-huh. And if you want to, there was Forbidden Zone. Okay, now, Forbidden Zone. I, I adore. I, uh, it I, is an excellent movie it, with excellent music. But it's this low-budget cult oddity that we don't know what to do with. And when you lump it in with, like, the same years, all these... Mm-hmm. Oh, ex- excuse me. And there was also... Maybe not the exact same year, but there was also Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Heart Cult, Hearts Called Band. That, it, was that was in the year previous. That was in the late 1970s. Um, yeah. That's a different thing. Uh, Sgt. Pepper is a huge, gigantic mess mm. with a ton... With, there's almost no dialogue in it. It's just a ton of people covering Beatles songs. Most of the covers are terrible. Mm. There's a couple of good ones. It's not worth getting to them. Listen to the soundtrack if you must. Uh, but yeah, we had three disco musicals. Mm. All of them bombed. The Apple bombed, which I've still never seen all the way through. And I need to get around to it one of these days. <laughs> it's like 75 minutes. I know. It just <laughs> never came up. I, I kept, they, they kept having screenings and I kept missing mm-hmm. them. I'm like, I want to see the big screen. Never got around yeah. to it. Uh, Xanadu. Like three or four times on the big screen. There's stuff I like about Xanadu, but Xanadu is not a good film. No, the Don Blue sequence is, is it, fun. It's pretty spectacular. Gene Kelly has a couple of nice bits in it. Um, put, and Olivia Newton-John a, is a good singer, and I like some of her songs. I like some of the music in that movie. She's kind of fun. She's, she's kind of a non-presence when it comes to, like, a screen uh, presence. Well, especially but, in that movie, but yeah. yeah and, um, and, the, and then they have the nerve to have her dance right next to Gene Kelly, and she, lo- she looks like a popsicle stick sculpture uh, can't com- stop, compared to how good he is. Can't Stop the Music uh, is a extremely fictionalized story uh, about the creation of the village people mm. uh, starring Steve Gutenberg <laughs> and As the uh, guy who found the village people and Caitlyn Jenner actually yeah, yeah. So that was pretty cool um, but uh, I, I gotta Ka- tell you Caitlyn back when she was credited as, as uh, yeah. her dead name but yeah, yeah. but yeah yeah but mm. Caitlyn I only just watched Can't Stop the Music for the first time like mm. a week ago and let me tell you something it's shit. <laughs> I had a very entertaining time. I enjoyed watching that movie. That movie is delirious camp. Mm. A lot of it very knowing. The uh, the characters no, who play yeah. the uh, the agent mm. and the publicist, they deserve their own show. They're hilarious. There's so much good, silly, intentional, kooky mm. stuff in that movie. And everything else, yeah, is pretty fucking terrible. But I get through it. The one exception to that rule in the 1980, though... And it opened the same week as Can't Stop the Music, because mm-hmm. it was a hit, was the Blues Brothers. Oh, yeah. That was a musical, That's a good and that musical. was a hit. It's an, it's an odd musical, though. In fact, in many mm. respects, it's not staged like a musical. In fact, uh, John Landis actually filmed large chunks of it specifically so that it didn't look like, like he cut off people's heads in musical numbers <laughs> just because he thought that was funny. Mm. So it's an odd musical in some ways, but it is really good. And it was a big hit. So there, it, it, this wasn't mm. quite the death knell, but it was a bad run. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like when, when it came back to making musicals, and I blame Chicago for so much. Um, <laughs> but Chicago really. Chicago is quite. Oh. Like, I love the musical Chicago. The canon yeah, and the songs are awesome. The characters yeah. are wonderful. It's a great hot topic. It's really. Uh, the musical itself is really kind of biting and satirical and it's wicked great. and even dirty. It's really great. The, the film doesn't know any of that. It's shot really badly. The editing sucks. They got the worst possible people to sing these numbers. No, no, no. It's Catherine no. Zeta Jones and Queen Latifah. No one else. Okay. Just, I just wanted yeah. to give credit to Catherine Zeta Jones and Queen Latifah because they are good. Yeah. 
They're really good in it. R- Renee Zellweger should not have gone anywhere near that movie, nor should have Richard Gere. Especially Richard Gere. Um, I, I was at a, a, a like a symposium that year with all of the editors who were nominated for the Best Editing Oscar. Mm-hmm. And the editor of Chicago, whose name escapes me at the moment, was up there, and someone asked him a question about why, considering that musicals are frequently filmed... Uh, are frequently edited a bit more classically so that mm. you can see more of what's going on. Why Chicago was so, so choppy. Yeah. So choppy. And that's, uh, and he basically told the story of, uh, yeah, so that's, uh, uh, so we cast Richard Gere. Mm. And, uh, to Rich- sing and dance. And Richard Gere cannot dance, not, mm. not compared to, you know, Catherine Zeta Jones at least. And uh, so we knew we had to start with that scene. Mm. We had to edit that scene, and then once we found a way to make that scene work, we had to edit the rest of the film the same way. So it all matched. So it all matched. So basically, Richard Gere is the reason why Chicago plays weird. But I also don't like, in Chicago, the movie, Mm. I think Rob Marshall put too much thought into it. He couldn't just film the goddamn story. Mm. He decided to create a musical in which all of the musical numbers are taking place inside a theater inside everyone's head. Yeah. Yeah. Because people don't actually sing, you see. When they when they do things, mm-hmm. so this would be their fantasy, and he's a very high concept like uh, a director for the stage. I saw his production, I think, of Cabaret, which was Ooh, cool, a very cool, very mm-hmm. minimalist, very striking, uh, but not the traditional version. So was of that Cabaret. was that the '90s revival with yeah. Alan Cumming? Yeah, oh, that's a great. Production. I, I didn't see. Yeah. Al, I saw it after Alan Cumming left, but it was still really, really. Uh-huh. I think Melina Kanikaridis uh, was starring in that. <laughs> okay. she was really good. Yeah. Um, but uh, but that was a really high concept. It was a reimagining of Cabaret. We didn't need a reimagining of Chicago. We needed to see Chicago. That would have been we nice. St- we didn't yeah. have... I mean, I know Chicago is a story that's actually been told multiple times. It's like a version for like the 20s or something. But... That musical needs to we, be... We need, to, we need a straight version before we have this riff on it. You yeah, know? We, we need to see the actual thing before the riff will really make a lot of sense. So... A lot of people, younger people that I knew at the time who didn't grow up with a lot of musicals because aside from Disney musicals, there weren't a lot of them in the 90s. And the one, a couple mm. of big ones that they tried, like Newsies, were big bombs. Yeah. yeah. Newsies is a lot of fun, but it, it did not do well. It has, it has a big enough cult following that they adapted it to the stage eventually. And but yeah. did real well on the stage. Like, yeah. it's a hit on the stage. But yeah, so, when it was first released, yeah, it was a bit tantalite like crazy. I loved it, but it was not, a, uh, it was not good, popular. Good, good music, but why is it like two and a half hours long? It was too, it was yeah. too bloated for it's on good but anyway uh but yeah a lot of people i knew who saw chicago thought that that's what musicals should be because mm. yes the whole singing thing doesn't make sense all musicals should be like that mm. and we saw a wave of musicals kind of playing off of that a little bit nine 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 yeah god i hated nine also <laughs> by rob marshall mm. uh Eight and a half sucks enough. We don't, <laughs> we don't need. We don't need a musical. We don't need a, a, a bad, ugly musical Maybe that's riffing on eight and a half. I assume it works better on the stage. I never saw it, it on the that's stage. One, that's one of those movies where like you're leaving. Movie. You're like, who's that for? Because yeah. Broadway fans are going to hate this because it's staged so badly. It's such a weird. Cinephiles role, but... are going to hate this because it's not really doing justice to eight and a half. Daniel Day Lewis only made so many movies. 
<laughs> that was one of them. I mean, I guess, I guess everyone's got to make a weird or right. bad one once in a while, but like, why? But why that? The idea that we need to find people who are virtuosic singers and dancers mm. to star in these movies seems to be lost on Hollywood. Well, we don't like, have they, they, actors who are that kind of triple threat anymore. Exactly. Not many, well, and, anyway. And I got to interview a young actress named Bella Heathcote once. She's an Australian oh, yeah. actress. Uh, she's been around. You've seen her in some I think, she, I think we're interviewed for Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. It's Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. Yeah. She's in uh, Dark Shadows. She's been around. And, Was um, wasn't she in... Um, she was in uh, The Neon Demon. That's what I was thinking or not the, uh, not yeah. the Neon... Yeah, The Neon Demon. She was in The Neon Demon, yeah. yeah. Uh, she was in The Neon Demon. Um, Great movie. And she, she's totally delightful. Mm-hmm. And uh, we, we were sort of having a, a conversation as part of it. And we sort of came to the conclusion that the triple threat now means acting like stunts and fight choreography. Because mm-hmm. well, yeah. we want action films now instead of musicals. And uh, that's just... The popular gestalt. It's going to come up more often. Yeah. So, than so yeah. That that yeah. she was trained to uh, do some martial arts and could fall down, but also kind of act and be funny was her triple threat. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, singing and dancing aren't in high demand in film. Yeah, and uh, even and so, even the, and even the actors who do go into singing, oftentimes they're. They go into sort of pop music, and there's a lot of auto tuning involved, and yeah, a, a little bit more, a little bit more pageantry than mm-hmm. there is sort of classical. Ah, oh, what a so, wonderful uh, singer they are! It's and, more about yeah. So they, they cast, is this song catchy? They cast not? actors. Can you sing? Well, I, I have a I have a record. Yeah. Well, Russell Crowe, you're still not a good act- singer. No, you're Russell Crowe, you are a very good actor. You're not a good singer though. And uh, you know, you know, who's a, you know, who's a triple threat? Anna Kendrick. Anna Kendrick. Anna Kendrick can sing. She can dance. I've, I haven't seen her dance amazingly, but mm. she can dance. But she yeah, can sing so, really well, and she's a really great. But actor. you know, Hollywood is so uh, so attached to this sort of marquee name. You know, however small a marquee name they are, they don't even have to be big. They just have to yeah. be recognizable enough that they'll just let them sing, even if they're just starting their vocal training now. You know who Meanwhile, on Broadway, yeah. there, there's waiters and waitresses who have been training since they were five. Mm-hmm. Who can you know blow those kids from La La Land right out of the water? Agreed. We need to move on, but before we oh, go, gosh. I just want to say, you know who I blame for that? Hmm. Marlon Brando. <laughs> guys and dolls. I love guys and dolls. In fact, I think as a story, the movie version of Guys and Dolls is even better than the stage play. I think the changes that they made, especially to the ending, work better. I like the new songs. I like that movie a lot. Hmm. Marlon Brando is not a singer. Hmm. He can perform well and he gets away with it. But it's abundantly clear that Frank Sinatra really wanted to be Nathan Detroit, and that Marlon Brando is his luck. Be a lady is charmingly naive in its actual like musical skill. (laughs) You'll know because of my and Gene Simmons is so wonderful in that <laughs> she, whole bit. She's and just Marlon gritting Brando, her teeth. <laughs> like again, he's giving the performance, and they wouldn't. They wouldn't and he's let, good. Well, he's, and also back in the day when an actor couldn't sing, they would dub them. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, the, Marlon yeah, Brando is too specific. Yeah. We couldn't do Brando. <laughs> we can do Aud- Audrey Hepburn. Yeah. Doesn't sound that lovely. Was it Julie Andrews did her voice in that. Um, oh, who was it? I heard it was. Was there, am I wrong? Was it Julie? Okay. It might whatever. have been Julie Andrews. It might have been Julie um, Andrews. But yeah. They, they would, we're talking about My Fair Lady. I'm going to look they would this dub, They would dub a lot of actors who couldn't sing, and that, that was just sort of the way around it. That way you could get a good vocal. <laughs> That's what I miss in musicals, a good vocals, good staging, things that look like musicals. Um... Very quickly, it was uh, Marnie Nixon. Marnie Nixon, that's right. It was Marnie yeah, Nixon. She also dubbed the voice she of Deborah Kerr and the King yeah. and I and Natalie Wood in yeah. West Side Story. So, my apologies to Marnie Nixon. You were a god. Yeah, they can lip sync right on key. Those actresses. Um, as for musicals that need to be adapted to film, get 
Seth MacFarlane, because okay. he loves musicals. He does! To do a musical version of Avenue Q, mm. the dirty puppet musical that won all those Tonys about a decade ago. Uh, it's a little past its time. Gary yeah. Coleman's one of the characters. Just rewrite that. Or, or um, just set it in the past. All right, yeah, whatever. Set it 10 years ago. And, you know, it's it's like a, a spoof of Sesame Street. So uh, when you see the musical, the actors are on stage with their own puppets. Yeah. Just film, a, you know, do a film of it, and that way you can hide the actors and the puppets or puppet characters again. Yep. It makes perfect sense to me. He's got the right kind of raunchy sense mm-hmm. of humor. I think he could stage a good straight musical he could. if he put his heart to it. No, um, he's, he's very good. When, uh, uh, his Ted movies, mm-hmm. Ted 2 is bigger than it needs to be, but Ted 1, very well-directed live-action movie. They're, they're, it's fun. It's, they're fine. I don't think comedy wise, but in terms of like terribly, uh, you know, his sense of humor is, is hit and miss, but, well, uh, but that's, that's his, his raunchiness, but like mm-hmm. he, he knows how to direct. He can do it. Anyway, let's move on. Mm-hmm. Thank you for the great, uh, for the great letter. That was really, that Thank was you, a good yeah. conversation. Uh, here's a letter from Ben. Uh, good day, gentlemen. It is my understanding from listening to your podcast that you both have significant others. Yes, we are married men. We are. Uh, I have been married for 10 years now to a woman five years younger than me. Okay. Uh, when it has been an issue, uh, while it has been an issue since we met, uh, the current situation has exasper- exacerbated an issue between me and my wife. We have very little in common when it comes to movies. Ah. I am forty-one. I am a 41-year-old man-child that loves Star Wars, Kevin Smith, Marvel, Batman, and classic comedy. <laughs> <laughs> I was very content to watch random low-budget movies that no one has ever heard of on Netflix. Cool. It sounds like you both have fine taste. Yeah. Um, I've tried to introduce my wife to my favorite movies, but she has a habit of falling asleep through them. I was watching Die Hard the other day, and my wife came into the room and she said she had never seen it. Instead of sitting down and enjoying the masterpiece, she decided to provide a running commentary about how horrible the movie was and ask a thousand questions. Wait, what was the movie? I, I... Die Hard. Oh, Die Hard. Yeah. Um, we currently find ourselves sifting through all the streaming services every night after we put the kids to bed and vetoing each other's picks for what movie to watch. The wife has suggested that we take turns picking movies. An ingenious idea, I would mm-hmm. say. Um, but I feel that life is too short, and there are too many good options to waste time on movies that I will not enjoy. You don't know You don't? That. Okay. We need, we're going to have a long know, time. Yeah. This is clearly a big um, bag of worms, yeah. and I like this letter. Uh, she also gets upset when I suggest that we move to different rooms to watch our own entertainment, because then we're not spending time together. That's yeah, a little antisocial. Um, well, I mean, sometimes it's okay, but you don't want that to be yeah. the norm. Do either of you have this issue with your partners, or since you watch movies professionally, do you try to do other activities with your partner? Any advice would be helpful. Uh, P.S. The wife and I watched Parasite on Hulu last night. My wife thought it was okay, and while I did not think it was the best movie I'd ever seen, I did enjoy it. One of the reasons that I think I enjoyed it more was that I had read up on the movie and was also able to identify a lot of the symbolism and illusions during that first watch as a result. The stink bug being the main one. (laughs) Thanks for the great content, Ben. Well, Um, I'm going to... uh, We're going to have a long conversation about this, actually, because I think this is something that people don't talk enough about when talking about our media consumption. Uh, but regards to your very particular issue where you don't feel like you have a lot in common, mm-hmm. um, what about Breakfast at Tiffany's? I think I remember the film, and if I recall, I think you both kind of liked it. And I think that's uh, yeah, that's the one thing you got. Can, can we not take film advice from Deep Blue Something? <laughs> Sorry, it was right there. It was right there. Uh, I had to do it. I had to do it. Um, I I think your wife has a good idea in taking turns. Um, uh, There's... Uh, it, it sounds like you are sort of uh, gravitating around a lot of the, the pop culty stuff, the, you know, the, the superheroes, the action, the genre stuff. And, uh, Would anyone like me to microwave something? Yes, could you microwave something for me? Yes, thank you. Um, yes. Ooh, ah, yes. That opossum is coming up nicely. Uh, that was a bit weird. Uh <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of significant others. 
Just, just, just hit it with a spoon. He won't try it again. Uh, but we're. <laughs> <laughs> I love you and so then, much, honey. And, and, and uh, hang on, watch this. And then a bird flew through the room. <laughs> and it ran into a sack of potatoes. <laughs> okay. Back to your question. Back to your question. Sorry. Um, uh, watch, watching movies with a, with a significant other who does not share your taste. Uh, my wife does not share my taste. Okay. I, I like uh, you know, slow foreign downers. And... Uh, she likes different movies. She yeah. likes uh, you know, music films and a lot of romances. Well, she has, actually has very eclectic taste. She has very good taste in movies. Mm-hmm. Um, Unlike some people I know. I have fine taste. I'm I didn't okay. say you. All right. <laughs> Sorry if it sounded sarcastic. <laughs> um, we're way off on this one. Yeah, it's it's difficult to find common ground a lot of the time. Uh, and because of the paradox of choice, because of where we are with streaming platforms, uh, the most popular show on Netflix is thumbing around the menu for an hour and a half. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's really difficult to find things you enjoy. Uh, and it's always a kind of a thrill when you find something you both love or you both hate and you can kind of mutually uh, mm-hmm. enjoy or not enjoy it together and yeah. that way you kind of bond a little bit and that's difficult to do when you have such uh, different taste in movies i think when I, what no matter what the situation is whether you're dating the person they're just a friend or they're you know they're a first date mm-hmm. they're somebody you never you've never known before and they haven't seen one of your favorite films and you immediately snatch it off the shelf, snatch it off the shelf because you have it on DVD, and you put, put it in the player and say, "We're going to watch this right now, and you're going to love it." That's a test. Yeah. And people don't like to be tested that way. There was a great line of dialogue to this effect in The Big Sick. I was just about to bring yeah, where, this where up. Yeah, Kumail Nanjiani was it Dawn of the Dead? He wants to show it was that uh, or Evil Dead too. I don't remember. It was some some old horror movie. Yeah. And and is like a dictating oh this is a really great film and if you haven't seen this i think you'll really really love this film and and uh zoe kazan great in everything just really sort of, underappreciated kind of, kind of smiles very charmingly and says i very sarcastically i love it when men dictate my taste to me uh <laughs> so uh it, it's okay to watch some of your favorite movies with somebody with an open mind mm. understanding that they might not love it. Yeah. And I think that's actually a really great opportunity when I'm watching like one of my favorite movies with somebody who's never seen it before to yeah. get sort of a kind of experience it through their eyes a little bit. Have it's you... a little disheartening if somebody doesn't like it. Right. Uh, but, you know, at least I'm getting a new perspective on it. And through those experiences, you can kind of gauge each other's taste a little bit better. It was Night of the and Living Dead. It was Night of the Living Dead. It, yeah. I knew it was, and then later know, they and, watched and, Abominable Dr. Fibes. Uh, good, good double feature. Good man. feature. Um, I, I don't test people like that anymore. I did that in college. Yeah. It was a dick thing to do. Well, um, what's I, interesting is that as uh, film critics, people come to us for recommendations. And yeah. so it's kind of the same thing. Mm. But... The art of being a film critic is a lot of it is the art of introducing movies. Oh well, yeah, before yeah. you Recom- see the, recommending movies. Before so. you see this, we're not just saying I, you know sometimes people just ask me for a title and I'll give them a title. But generally speaking, I like to set it up. Mm. I want people to know that okay, here's a movie that I really like. I don't know, Rockula. Okay. <laughs> I'm not just going to dump Rockula in someone's lap. I'm going to tell them what to expect from Rockula, mm. so that they'll be on the same page before the movie begins, and they're they'll more likely to get on the film's wavelength. There's no guarantee they'll do that. Mm-hmm. There's no guarantee they'll like it even if they do. But 
actually just saying, hey, listen, this is campy and silly. It's got a lot of really bizarre cameo, especially if you follow pop music in the 80s. Mm -hmm. Uh, The music is surprisingly witty in its lyrics, even though it is very chintzy. And the plot is about pirates killing people with ham bones in the present. Mm -hmm. So enjoy the ride. Like, that tells you a little bit about it. So if you want to share something with your partner, your friend, whoever, and you want to make sure you have the highest possibility mm-hmm. of them glomming onto it the way you have, and there's never a guarantee. Uh, that's something I think is really important to talk about it and what it means to you and what you like about it beforehand, not during. Mm. The There is something very, very weird when you're watching a movie that someone else likes and you haven't seen it, and yeah. they keep turning to you with that smile like, huh? That's good, right? That's yeah, good. Yeah. Like, shut, 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 shut. This is a good scene. This is good scene. Just yeah, as, yeah, yeah. It's distracting. I'm just as aware that I'm being watched as I am as the thing and I'm watching and I can't really get immersed like that. So that's weird and, and tricky and makes it harder. Mm. So it, part of it is you need to sort of monitor yourself and just enjoy the yeah. movie and let them enjoy it or not. Mm. And uh, something that I – I'm not sure if this will work, but uh, if you both select a film that neither of you have heard of, mm-hmm. that's a good way to co- come at it. That's a great way to come at it. Rather than constantly try to find something that only fits one of you, find something that is completely different. Try, maybe try something that's so, that neither of you are familiar with, like mm-hmm. a genre that but, neither yeah. of you have explored. All, I don't know, kung fu movies. Like I never really watched a lot of kung fu movies. Neither have I. Cool. Let's find a couple mm-hmm. lists of the best kung fu movies and work from there. Yeah. That's a thing you can do. Uh, you, you say that your wife's taste runs to, quote, low-budget things on Netflix, and that's very broad. Yeah, there's a, I, that, I'd love a, a few more specifics to sort yeah. of get a, a little bit of a better line on that her could, taste. That could be everything um, from TV movies to art house foreign films. Yeah, to, yeah, yeah that could yeah, be anything. So if, if, I, if you can write back, let us know a little bit more about your taste and her taste. Maybe we could start recommending something that might be common to both of you. Yeah, uh, that can save your marriage, uh, or or just <laughs> I hope it's not to that. Point. I hope not to that point. Well, or, we, we or just so go much... go on something like the Criterion Channel. Yeah, uh, find something that maybe not doesn't even intrigue you. Just like look at the title. That's weird. Start. Yeah, take it a chance. Give it at least twenty minutes. And if you're both completely out, it's like, oh, this is not something I'm at all interested in. Then you know reassess at that point maybe uh, 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 I want to talk a little bit more about the broad uh, mm. issue at hand here but the other thing I do want to suggest is I love movies Whitney loves movies but this might also be a situation where it would even be a better idea to find a TV show that neither of you have seen mm. because then if you can find one thing you get hours out of it yeah, yeah. So like, oh, I never watched Downton Abbey. Neither have I. Oh, we both like Downton or, Abbey or Battlestar Galactica. Or, or it doesn't have to involve a screen. You know, just turn the TV well, off and don't watch what, movies together. Do board games. That's what, that's what yeah. I was about to say. We live in this very media-saturated culture yeah, right now. And it's only all, gotten worse over the last hundred years. Yeah, like you're every not watching decade. a movie, you're watching TV, or you're playing a video game, mm. or you're listening to a podcast. You're, you're, yeah. you're sucking information in your head at all times. We're constantly uh, mm. uh, being entertained. That's not the worst thing in the world, but it's an interesting state of being in the vast majority <laughs> of human history. That was not even a possibility. Mm. So, you may want to maybe, if, if that particular cultural paradigm isn't really working for you right now, you may want to step out of that altogether for a little bit. Maybe pick a day a week where you turn all your media off and, you know, you could just talk to each other if that's something you feel comfortable doing. Or if you want to do something together, 
you could do a puzzle, you could paint, mm-hmm. you could, uh, <laughs> whatever. There's all sorts of great mm-hmm. differences. You could, you could uh, maybe hike, hike, cook. Yeah, yeah. Well, maybe hike might be difficult depending well, on social right distancing now, yeah. right now. Cooking might be fun. Try new recipes. Uh, um, if you have a room maybe for a little garden or some potted plants, you could uh, work on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of different things you can do that I think are conducive to conversation. Hmm. You just want to have a shared activity in which you can both uh, – uh, it's not competitive. It's not, will you like my movie? Will you not like my hmm. movie? It's, uh, hey, what did you draw? Oh, neat. I drew this. Hmm. It can be that. Yeah. So maybe you want to step out of it and maybe that might be good. It, this actually might be a great opportunity for a lot of people to – step out of this sort of whirly-burly, constantly mm-hmm. moving, constantly consuming media and just try to find a different way to interact once in a while. So I'm not saying you're not already doing that, but if you're not already doing that, maybe give it a try. Mm-hmm. Uh, I found it's been really helpful. We uh, Michelle and I had a painting day uh, earlier this week. I drew a picture of our cat, Luca. <laughs> uh, it's not great, but it's mine. <laughs> so I, she drew something amazing off the top of her head, and I worked real, real hard to get this black blob with cat ears. <laughs> but by God, it looks kind of like a cat. Oh <laughs> when, I, when I'm left to my own devices to doodle, it's like here, here's a cooked turkey, but it's wearing shoes. <laughs> You're actually a pretty good doodler. Um, I like that, your art style; it's I, fun. All I can do is doodle. It doesn't get go any further. It doesn't than that. have to doodle like little weird, bizarre. Anyway, things we, that we go in margins. We wish you the best. Um, hopefully, we gave you a couple of ideas. Um, this period we're all going through right now, where we're like socially isolating, and uh, mm-hmm. oftentimes we're sort of cooped up with our families, can lead to stresses that would normally be alleviated by little things like going to work or going yeah. outside or taking a walk, just being apart for a little bit. Yeah. yeah, that's just the natural part of a relationship, um, and that's kind of being taken away from a lot of us as an option. And we need to find new ways to cope. It's not always going to mm-hmm. be easy, but I think we can get through it. Here, here's something a little bizarre, you know. Surely when you go online, you see, like, targeted ads. They, yeah. they, they tap into your Facebook profile so they know, like, your age and your location. Yeah. And um, during social isolation, I've seen, a, like, an uptick in ads for divorce lawyers. Oh, that's it's, not good. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I guess they're, they're I, trying to find a market. I was feeling pretty good. You know, I'm, I'm kind of a homebody in general. I do miss going outside and going oh, to God, Schmodown yes, and stuff. Yeah. But... Generally speaking, I'm doing okay, better than I thought I would. But then I actually watched TV, not a DVD, not streaming. Like live television. Live television. And the commercials have all rapidly shifted oh, yeah. to actually yeah. like address what's going on right mm-hmm. now. I saw a commercial Wait, time, for... Times are tough right now, oh, so, yeah. but, but luckily Dunkin' Donuts has your back. Yeah. You know Stay safe. Yeah. Like The one I saw that freaked me the fuck out, it was the weirdest commercial, was there was a commercial for Las Vegas. The yeah, city. The strip is like, the, the strip is dead right now. Yeah. But, but you, but, no, no, they're no, going to come back or whatever. Yeah, no, yeah. what it was is uh, you can't go to Las Vegas right now, but don't worry. We'll be here when you come back. And I'm <laughs> we're, like, we're, sa- what you, we're what saving th- up the sin. Yeah. So just, uh, what do you want us to do right now, Vegas? Just, just dream. 
book a hotel you, for an unknown date? You I mean, took uh, away the free valet parking. That was the only thing you had going for you, just, as far as I'm concerned. Just free parking. It does, well, not even valet. I had free yeah. valet parking for a while. Valet, I, oh, yeah. it was great. <laughs> I don't care about any of that other stuff. Yeah, I uh, hope but, that helps. So, yeah, but, but please write back. Let us know um, a little bit more explicitly both yeah. of your tastes in movies, and maybe we can sort of push you toward films that you might both enjoy together. Yeah, we're happy to do that, but we need as much info as possible in order to do the best possible recommendations. Uh, here's a letter from Susanna. Uh, dear Bibbs and Rockmeister McCool, first and foremost, I hope that you and your families are staying well. And second, thank you so much for reading my previous email. I guess thank we have another email from Susanna. I really enjoyed listening to your Iron List discussing films of the 90s. Mm. Whitney referring to Blade as having a tood made me laugh out loud. <laughs> I don't remember that. It, but it describes so the you. movie and perhaps all of the 90s perfectly. When I was 17, when the millennium hit and all the computers went back to 19, 1900, haha. Uh, so Clueless would have been absolutely on my list of pivotal films from the 1990s. It was a defining movie for me and most girls I knew in terms of how, how we dressed, spoke. That was harsh, Ty. Uh, <laughs> the music we listened to, etc. However, I understand why you omitted it as uh, it certainly lacks the cynicism and in-your-face extremeness of classic 90s films. Uh, even though it is a send-up of shallow, wealthy L.A. teens, its main character actually aims to be a good person and is willing to learn from her mistakes. She even has a caring, sweet relationship with her father, played by the wonderful Dan Hedaya, uh, which feels very un-90s. But just to provide one woman's perspective, for me it would have made the cut, and it was probably the most important film of my adolescent life. Uh, fair. Um, uh, is there more to the letter? Or? Yeah, there's, there's okay. a little one. Uh, is it about Clueless? Or about the no, robot? finally to the actual okay. point of my email. Okay. Uh, you guys are quite literally the only people I can think of to tell this to, but The Persuaders has been airing on UK TV. Yay! Side note, I live in the UK. Okay. Uh, now I have all episodes of the show saved on my DVR. I've watched one episode so far. I'm trying to be sparing so I don't get overexcited and binge them. <laughs> and beheld Tony Curtis in a dark turquoise crushed velvet suit. Yes. And Peter Bowles in a waist-length fur bomber-style bomber jacket. <laughs> Is this the best men have ever dressed? <laughs> I am beginning to think so. The answer... Is yes. Yes. No men have ever dressed better than the men do. Roger Moore, this by the way, if you if you haven't listened to our show Cancel Too Soon, we covered this like a year and a half ago. Uh -huh. Persuaders was an action adventure show starring James Bond himself, Roger Moore, mm -hmm. and Tony Curtis. As Tony Curtisiest. Yeah, like seriously and, and honestly. Neither of us were big Tony Curtis fans until we saw Persuaders. Well, I mean, All of a I was, sudden, I was a Tony Curtis fan. But like, I liked him fine, but now I'm like, oh, I get now it. you get it with Tony I, Curtis. Yeah, like he, Tony Curtis he, was cool. He was never more a dazzling just star yeah. than he was in the Persuaders. Really fun show. Like it's mm -hmm. not meant to be binged. Like the episodes are kind of yeah. well, they're kind of same a little leisurely, but like one a week. Yeah, that's yeah. a great watch. Uh, Roger Moore designed his own clothes. Yep, he gets his own title card. He is in this sort of like. Uh, several times he's wearing like uh, a yellow leather riding gloves I think mm -hmm. some nice dark green slacks yeah. and a pearl colored wool shoulder padded like knee length coat over yeah, it so cool and it's like oh my god like what unicorn did you make that out of these things are amazing <laughs> Is that anyway, the end of the letter? Uh, so to a question, what yes. what is your favorite fashion from any TV show or film? Well, this isn't to say the best costume design for a show or movie, but the clothes you would most want to wear. Ah. For me, it is Gene Tierney's outfits from Laura. <laughs> That's a good choice. That's a great choice. Um, thank you so much for everything you're doing, even during this incredibly trying time. Stay, stay safe and well. Sincerely, Susanna. Uh, before we get into the fashion question, and I love that question, mm -hmm. uh, I want to talk about Clueless. Uh, Clueless was a film, I don't know about you, but... 
when we did our episode of the Iron List, that was like the the most quintessential films of the nineties. Yeah, we each did a top ten. There's stuff that didn't make either list. I don't think either of us put Airborne on the list. And boy, is that one of the most 90s movies ever. <laughs> uh, Clueless didn't make my list for one reason. And it's not because I don't love Clueless. I do mm. love Clueless. Clueless is delightful. Mm. Clueless is funny. Clueless is sweet. Clueless is... It's not especially romantic, but I think it's got a really good heart. Mm. Um, and, of course, the fashions and the style and everything are very much of a time. The reason I didn't put Clueless on there was because mm. I remembered when Clueless came out, and I saw it opening weekend. We were very excited about Clueless. Alicia Silverstone was the next big thing. Mm. And I liked that at the time. But even at the time, I thought to myself, this is so heightened. Mm. Yes, there are people who would wear that and that and that and would say all of these things. The odds that they would wear all of those things at the same time in the same room and say all of those same things in the same conversation is, even at the time, I thought was a little forced. Mm-hmm. Now, nowadays, I look back at it, and it's like being rocketed back to the 90s, yeah. all, in, all in one place. It's like a little microcosm. But at the time, it felt like they were almost trying too hard. Yeah, yeah. So that's one of the things that kept it down a little bit. But nevertheless, I do consider mm-hmm. it a comedy classic. I really do love Clueless Oh, a lot. Clueless is, a, is, I mean, I have yeah. nothing bad to say about Clueless. No, it's, Clueless yeah. is wonderful. Yeah. And you got Wally Shawn. Yeah, oh, it's amazing. great. Yeah, yeah, really, really great. But uh, as for the best fashion... Like the clothes you'd want to wear. I'll tell you one right now. Mm. Um, maybe not the whole movie. Actually, certainly not the whole movie. Jesus mm. Christ. But uh, we were watching, as I already mentioned, Can't Stop the Music. And there's an incidental <laughs> character. There is an incidental character. Mm. He like owns a nightclub. He's only in one scene. Okay. And it's early in the movie. Everyone's partying. And the guy who owns this nightclub shows up and he's wearing the coolest suit I've ever seen in my life. I want this suit. This is oftentimes when I'm watching a movie, I'll see people wear something really cool. Like everyone in the Matrix. Mm. Like, oh, they look so cool in vinyl. I would look like shit in vinyl. <laughs> I do not have the body for vinyl. Also, it's not I, comfortable. No, I, it's, just, I, I, it, it's not interesting to me. I have... <sighs> I had a pair of black vinyl pants at one point. I'm not I, surprised I at all I, by I, that revelation. I, I only wore I only wore them out like a few times, yeah. but yeah, I did have a pair of black. That doesn't surprise pants. me. At all. But this 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 outfit is the sort of thing where I'm like, I could wear that. Mm-hmm. I could wear that on the schmodown. I could wear this out just for fun. It was a white suit mm-hmm. with roses all over it, big ones like uh, like like your grandmother's wallpaper. Uh-huh. But it was also sequined, so it sparkled. <laughs> and it is perfect. Perfect for the larger gentleman. So I really want that outfit, but that's definitely not my main answer because my main answer was the persuaders. I need to come okay. up with the number two. Whitney, anything else come to mind in uh, your favorite ab- outfits? Absolutely. And this is going to be really obscure, but uh, there's okay. a 2008 film, a uh, Russian film, that was released in the U.S. under the title Hipsters. The Russian title was Stilyagi, which uh, no memory of is, is a little bit more accurately translated as like fashionista. Mm. Stilyagi, Stilyagi is a uh, fashion, so like the, the fashionites. Mm-hmm. It takes place in uh, in Russia in 1955 when uh, there's a lot of uprising of uh, communist youth, but at the same time there were a lot of uh, like pop culture, like Western pop culture loving kids who were sort of getting these little dribs and drabs of things that were coming over like through the Iron Curtain. And they were making their own suits and styling their own hair and trying to come up with the best Mm. of what they can interpret of what like mainstream American and European culture was at the time. So Mm. as such, they would get these little tiny dribs and drabs of these culture and they would kind of exaggerate it. So they were wearing these like 1940s suits, but they look like Dick Tracy characters. Mm. 
just in terms of the color schemes and how everything pops and how their hair is like it's it's like out of John Waters' hairspray, just these gigantic <laughs> hairdos. Every single suit in that movie looked so fucking awesome. That's awesome. And I just wanted to own every single suit. Let me see if I can find some pictures to show you. Yeah, I'd love um, to hear about that. But I'm yeah, trying to uh, think, honestly, about other, like, I, every outfit in The Great Beauty. It's very Italian, very oh, yeah. very exposed angles, white mm. pants, orange coats. Yeah, here, here I'm looking. That's, that's where I'm at fashion-wise right now. I'm, I, mm. My mom got me this jacket covered in tiger's. Uh, for okay. Christmas, and I wore it at a schmodown, and mm. I just feel like, you know what? Y- yes! <laughs> I'm comfortable wearing this out. I think this is me right now. This will change. Mm. But I like that right now. Uh, That's um, cool. Here's a great uh, great shot of a man. He's wearing a, sort of a red plaid, really thick woolen coat over a mm. plaid tangerine-colored shirt, Ooh. a short pink tie with a gold clip, oh some army green pants, and platform brown patent leather shoes. Oh, my God. Like, there, there's just something so... Like, it's exaggerated and it's pure at the same time. <laughs> here's, here's another one. It's, this fellow I, wearing, like, a, a he's got, like, a lavender shirt on hipsters, o- yeah. over a powder blue coat, oh, yeah, some dark blue that, pants. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that and, works. And then, of course, the gigantic greasy hairdos. Yeah. Um, just, it's such a colorful, energetic film. Nobody talked about it. Yeah. Uh, you know, apart from, like, a few people in the indie rocks, in, indie rock, indie movie scene. Oh, you know what a great um, outfit that nobody yeah, talks about? Look, look up the movie Stilyagi. It's, it's, yeah. on, uh, it's on Amazon. You can just watch hipsters today if you have an amazon subscription uh yeah i encourage you to seek that out it's it's really fun uh musical about clashes of youth culture in russia in the 1950s you know what a good look ray fines and strange days mm, uh, good but garish good garish and definitely has cocaine on him oh, look, oh he's, yeah. he's coked up to the nines nowadays coke is passe I don't need the Coke. I can just wear just a nice like, sports just coat. just want look like a Coke dealer? I want to look like a Coke dealer from the movie Strange Days. Okay. That's a very specific ask. All right. Okay. We're going to move on. Uh, if you have, I'm very curious what people think of the most fashionable movies ever. I mean, of course, we both like the classical looks, mm. of course, but um, we all have our fun fun little outfits yeah, yeah. Um, that, we, that we'd fantasize mm. about. Um, some of which I want to do for Schmodown. Uh, entrances. I came up with an idea for a Schmodown entrance mm-hmm. the other day that I really want to do, but it's going to require a bit of sewing. And it's mm. going to require at least one somewhat expensive trip to Michael's. What, when that reopens? Yeah, yeah I'm going to need to, craft, I'm gonna need to go to the store. Yeah. I need to go to, yeah, Michael's is a craft store. I don't know if everyone knows it, but it's a big chain of craft stores. If you want to do anything involving yep. knitting, scrapbooking, photography, whatever, they just have everything. Puff it's paint, a, iron on. It's a good anything. store. Uh, it's always been good to me. But uh, yeah, I need to. There's one like forty dollar trip to Michael's, and I need to get a thimble, basically, and just mm. and a tarp. Like that's what I need. But it's going to be great. Anyway, uh, I think I have time for one or two more. Okay, uh, here's a letter from Tom! Exclamation point. Tom. Tom. Not Tom. Tom! Hey, Tom. Hey, guys. I hope you're keeping well during this extremely weird time. I'm a college teacher, so this has been a very strange time in my life. Teaching online classes and not seeing my students anymore has been a very difficult and strange thing to overcome. I'll bet. Uh, With this newly acquired free time, I decided to pick a director and binge watch their entire filmography. I've heard a few people Um, doing that. I love that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's a great Um, great way to spend your time. Start with Fassbender. It'll take a while. Uh... (laughs) One director that I uh, was familiar from a, familiar with from afar, but had only seen one film from before, was Paul Thomas Anderson. Oh. A lot of people are going through Paul Thomas and Wes Anderson. 
yeah. a, a lot here. Well, they both made enough films that'll that'll take you a little yeah. while, but not so many. It feels daunting. Yeah. Like you can get through their filmographies in a week or two. Yeah. I, I had seen Boogie Nights years ago, and I loved it, so I decided to start with his work. PTA is often considered one of the great American directors, often put right up there with Scorsese. And I had listened to a lot of his interviews before I found him uh, before, and I found him a fascinating figure who had a unique voice in the film world. I had loved his varied projects over the years, although he is definitely an auteur and a style carried across most of his films. I think it's difficult to pin down a genre that he can be associated with as his films are also different. Yep. Um, I have just finished all of his films and I have to say I now agree with people when they declare him the great contemporary American director. Hmm. I almost loved all of his films with There Will Be Blood, Punch Dark Love, Boogie Nights, and Magnolia being my favorites. I really enjoyed The Master and Phantom Thread too. While Inherit Vice was difficult at times, I felt (laughs) as though it was a very unique and interesting film and I'm glad I have now seen it. I loved Inherent Vice. I love. Might be his favorite movie of mine. I loved uh, my, watching my it. Is his. I, I loved watching it. It doesn't linger in my memory terribly much. Oh, okay. Like I revisit in my head mm. moments from The Master or Punch Drunk Love oh, or Boogie okay. Nights, but for whatever reason, Inherent Vice. Most of it, I enjoy watching. It just kind of slipped away. Um, my question to you is: What are your thoughts on PTA? Or are you, either of you fans of his work in general? I don't often hear him being brought up in your podcasts. <laughs> question mark. Uh, what are your favorites and possibly least favorite films of his? All the best. Keep safe and wash those damn hands, Tom. Okay. Uh, uh, well, first off, mm. uh, I'm a fan of mm. Paul Thomas Anderson. I don't, I don't think he's made a bad movie yet, and that's pretty impressive. And I think the mm-hmm. majority of his movies are, if we were rating them, mm-hmm. three and a half to four stars. He works and operates and always has right from the beginning. I think Hard Eight is a very underappreciated film. At a very high level, he's always very ambitious, and he's not ambitious in superficial ways. He wants to tell interesting stories in interesting ways. Mm-hmm. And I admire that. And I admire that he is always pushing himself and experimenting with different types of movies, different types of dramas, and in some cases, different types of comedy. Um I think it's something that, yeah, maybe makes it a little difficult for people to think about Paul Thomas Anderson's whole filmography and that, Mm -hmm. you know, it's not like Scorsese who, even though he's been sort of pigeonholed by a lot of people as a mafia director, a lot of his movies are about uh, intense male relationships, whether Mm -hmm. or not, I mean, that's that's what Passion of the Christ, not Passion of the Christ, uh, Lessentation of the Christ is about. Um, He has proclivities. Mm -hmm. I think Paul Thomas Anderson is actively trying... Not to tell the same story over and over again and always mm. try to... He brings a 1970s sensibility to almost everything he does. Yeah. Sometimes overtly, like in Boogie Nights, sometimes in sort of um, fleeting uh, reference. Um, well, and and the, that kind of... Um, I, I, there's no really better way to describe it. A hipster bleakness yeah. that you know, a lot of 90s directors kind of picked up on. Uh, him and my boss, Quentin Tarantino, both ta- uh, tapped into that. Uh, yeah, but I think PTA is like – I think Tarantino and you know, mm. I don't work for him. But um, I think he's sort of insular in his appreciation of – um, cinema, I think he kind of has his own lens, his own little world he likes to work in. Mm. And I think Paul Thomas Anderson, although he is clearly influenced by the likes of especially Robert Altman, mm. uh, but others of his ilk, um, I think he wants to play yeah. in, in different sandboxes more often. Um, my favorite Paul Thomas Anderson movie probably Punch Drunk Love. Yeah, I figured you'd choose that one. Yeah, it's right up there. Uh, it, 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 it waffles a little bit. Sometimes I think it's the master. But, but usually it's Punch Drunk Love. It's weird because he chose his, like, his most and his least accessible movies. I know. Uh, 
Um, Bunch Drunk Love yeah. is I mean, you've seen it mm-hmm. uh, obviously the person who wrote it but if it's, it's a film that's sometimes overlooked in his filmography mm-hmm. it's not didn't get a bunch of award nominations for example but um Paul Thomas Anderson worked with Adam Sandler at a time when Adam Sandler was still a major box office draw, but people were starting to see that he kind of did the same thing over and over again, mm-hmm. and he was kind of circling, yeah. not the drain per se, but um, he just sort of was Adam Sandler, and people didn't expect anything more of him. And Paul Thomas Anderson, rather brilliantly, took Adam Sandler's manchild, suppressed rage persona. Mm-hmm. That had appeared in many of his movies, Happy Gilmore, The Waterboy, etc., and tried to say, like, okay, let's take that persona and actually let's try to take that seriously. How sad must that man be? Yeah, how, because he's angry all the time and you don't know why. Why and, is he so angry? Why mm-hmm. is he so lonely? And what would he be doing in this workaday world that would allow him to? Live, but also experience the kind of isolation in which that kind of personality could thrive. So he engineered uh, a family in which he's like the youngest and also the only boy. So mm-hmm. he has odd relationships with women. Um, he works in a novelty uh, business, so he doesn't actually get out that much. Mm-hmm. It's very specialty items. Uh, in this and like he, really ugly warehouse yeah. out in the valley, yeah. and he and he looks for little victories wherever he can find it. The first thing that happens in the movie is basically just God giving him a gift. It's just this little piano mm. or, or whatever it calls harmonium, and he just falls off a truck and just takes it. It's like mine. This is mine. I'm gonna have this. And then he comes up with this scheme, which is based on a true story, of how to scam a pudding company out of frequent flyer miles. Mm-hmm. Boy, Paul Thomas Anderson tells the shit out of that story. If you listen to the soundtrack, you can hear the pudding talk to him. You can hear it tell him. You can hear it give him ideas. Um, Such a clever, interesting... The sound design is perfect in that movie. One of the best sound design movies ever. I think Paul Thomas Anderson is a really great director who has yet to encounter the right editor. Hmm. I feel like his films are all... uh, Like, he's just trying to throw in everything. There's so many interesting ideas that they suffer in terms of pacing. I feel like Magnolia is bloated beyond right. Yeah, Magnolia is three hours and sixteen minutes. Yeah. Uh, I don't. You know, I, I, I get it. I like yeah. Magnolia, but I also feel like it's him going a little wild and needing to be yeah, reined in a smidge. For that one, you know, he's clearly going for something like shortcuts. You know, yeah. he's going for a big Nashville, uh, Altman. Really. Uh, oh yeah, Nashville. That's more fair. Kind of an Altman esque kind of thing. Uh, so I don't mind the length of something like Magnolia, but. Phantom Thread didn't need to be over two hours. Phantom, Phantom Thread's Thread, a bit much. Phantom Thread could have been a nice, lean 90 minutes. I uh, like Phantom Thread yeah. a lot. Phantom Thread is bloated. Phantom Thread does yeah. not need to be as long as it is. Same it's really same, good, same. but that's, one, that's probably why it's my least favorite of his. Yeah, same with The Master. We didn't need every single one of those things. I'll, uh, I'll forgive The Master because I think The Master actually has significance that like the epic mm-hmm. runtime supports. When yeah. you're watching something really long yeah. and it actually feels important, mm. the, the length can support that. Yeah, that's true. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I feel, I feel like he has uh, never been asked to not be self-indulgent, and as such, it can really show uh, in, in ways that, in, that isn't very appealing. He's never really been in the studio system. Like mm. he never made like. Uh, like one for the studio. Yeah, yeah. You know, he did. He did an independent. He did independent doing movie. His thing. Heart yeah. Eight, by the way, often overlooked. Really great. Like mm-hmm. I, it's actually up there in my favorite Paul mm-hmm. Thomas Anderson movies. It's just a really wonderful character piece, but it's very small. 
Then he got a chance to do Boogie Nights. Boogie Nights is huge. <laughs> it's a big ensemble piece. Boogie Nights is him just like, oh my god, what if I never Daring. get to make another movie yeah. again? I'm going to do everything, and it's fun. Mm-hmm. And then he did it again. And maybe he should have backed off a little bit because I think Boogie Nights gets a little big for its britches. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, no, mostly um, I think he's he's a genius. My uh, my wife had the most brilliant interpretation of Paul Thomas Anderson's work. And uh, this, you're you're right, it is brilliant. Th- this I've heard the, this was something she came up with just sort of idly. It's like you know, if you think about it for a second, it's like, mm-hmm. oh my god, honey, this is great. I don't call her honey. Um, <laughs> uh, you can. Uh, skipping past Heart 8 for a second. Now, it has the number 8 in the title. That's significant. Uh, Boogie Nights, Lust, Magnolia, Envy, mm-hmm. uh, Punch Drunk Love is Wrath. Yes. There Will Be Blood is Greed. Definitely. The Master is Pride. Mm-hmm. Inherent Vice, Sloth. <laughs> and Phantom Thread, given that big breakfast and how much eating plays into it, can easily be gluttony. Mm-hmm. So you got the Seven Deadly Sins right there. He made seven films, each one about a different deadly sin. Part eight. It's the eighth deadly sin. <laughs> what is the eighth deadly sin? Pathos. <laughs> That's my interpretation. That's a great deadly uh, yeah. sin. Pathos. <laughs> Jesus being Christ. being pathetic. Um that I think that's a wonderful way to look at his works. That each hmm. one sort of centers around a deadly sin, and mm-hmm. I think he's also interested in deconstructing the quote, the myth of the great man. Yeah, he's uh, that, that that created that created America. That's mm-hmm. definitely what the Every, master everything will be from the, about everything from uh, deconstructing the myth of John Holmes mm-hmm. to deconstructing the myth of Scientology to mm-hmm. deconstructing. Yeah, that's a good point. The, the myth of like American capitalism. Yeah. That, that's there will be blood. I think it argue uh, it's also punch trunk love. Uh, well, yeah, that too. You know, I um, I dig that. Mm. I dig that a lot, and that's something that I think is what makes Paul Thomas Anderson mm. really great. Is that when he seems to come up with an idea for a story, mm-hmm. and most of his works are original. Um, he doesn't seem to start with "Wouldn't it be cool mm. if this guy fought this guy?" <laughs> yeah, He's yeah. actually like, "I want to tell a story." Story about the, the origin about, of Scientology yeah, or yeah. wrath. Like I want to tell a story about wrath. I want to explore the concept of pride. Mm-hmm. And when you start with that kind of baseline, universal, you know, internal human conflict, mm-hmm. the things that we all wrestle with every day to one extent or another, and at some point we all fall prey to, mm-hmm. then you can throw almost anything on top of that. <laughs> if it starts off with a universal nugget, it can then become weird as shit. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't matter what you what you do on top of that because at the heart of it, it's something we can connect to. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah. Uh, he's also one of those sort of frustrating uh, directors whose audience uh, tends to run, <laughs> run toward the obnoxious. Uh, <laughs> I like I, I like I like Paul Thomas Anderson. I know a lot of people who do like Paul Thomas Anderson, but I've met a lot of people who are maybe a little too into Paul Thomas Anderson. Mm-hmm. It's like the guys who come at you and say, "Yeah, I really love Scarface." It's like I like Scarface too, but I'm a little afraid of the guys who are all about Scarface, you know, or Fight Club. Mm-hmm. The dudes who are really all about Fight Club feel that way about Joker as well. <laughs> Well, I think some of those are better movies than others, but a lot of those movies can be appreciated it, very superficially. Was it you or, or uh, were you quoting a different critic when you said uh, Joker was backward backward engineered from the college dorm room poster? Yeah, we, Joker is a college dorm room poster that became a movie, basically. Uh, that was not my quote. I wish I could remember who said oh, it. Right. Um, 
Um, but uh, yeah, I think there's a lot of movies that are easy to appreciate on superficial levels. And I think there's a couple of PTA movies that are like that. I think you can just watch Boogie Nights mm-hmm. and not delve too deeply into it and look at it as just a on-the-surface story of what true, happened yeah. to these people in the, the transition from the heyday of the American pornographic film industry to the video era, which was not a heyday. Um, you could talk about that. that mm. Then you could just appreciate it on that level. Um but uh, I think at his best, his works go beyond that. Mm. Uh, and as a result, I think they appeal to people whose uh, dispositions towards art can run a little snobby. However, I think his work actually warrants that kind of uh, high echelon appreciation. Mm. I don't think he's a poser in any particular way. Yeah. Uh, his, I think his early work wasn't as insightful as his later work. But that's true for almost every artist, so I'm not going to complain. Also, his early work is still great. So, um, now, is he the great modern American auteur? Mm. He's up there. Um, He's certainly part of that conversation. I'm I'm thinking of who else. The trick is you need to have someone who has made a significant number of movies. Mm. I mean, Paul Thomas Anderson has been making movies since, like, the mid-90s. So but, he's he's only, but he's only made eight. So, he's only uh, made eight. The, the person who, when we talk about uh, American filmmakers of, like, the 21st century, mm-hmm. who I'm like, oh, my God, I will watch anything they do. Because clearly they know a lot and they know how to, they know how to tell great stories. Is Ryan Coogler. <laughs> Ryan Coogler mm. gets better and better and better. And I cannot wait to see what he does next. From Fruitvale Station, which is devastating. Mm-hmm. To Creed, which is, I think, one of the great studio films of the last decade, mm-hmm. and also one of the great sports movies, right up there with the original Rocky. Uh, and then Black Panther, which I think is a transformative film in the superhero genre. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's ambitious, he's imaginative, and he's able to play in a lot of different genres. And kind of epitomize them all. Mm-hmm. So he's the first person who comes to mind when I think of like who else is the great like American auteur mm-hmm. that, of the modern era. Not like people who have been around for forever who are still working like Scorsese. What about you? Is there anyone mm-hmm. else who comes to mind? Not right now. <laughs> I just, uh, don't, you're just you're blanking. It's yeah, been a long just, letters just, episode. Just, yeah, a little, little bit of a okay. Well, brain, I, brain I, fart there. I think that's I think that's a good time to stop. Then, right. if Whitney is if Whitney is out of brain, <laughs> I, I cannot brain. That's anyone. fine. Um, I had a short night last night. That's fine. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, everybody, for writing in. Thank you, everybody, for uh, reaching out to us. Uh, we know right now is a pretty. Uh, lonely and weird time for a lot of people. We know and... it's a lonely and weird time, but Dunkin' Donuts has your back. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I just realized I was doing yeah. it. But seriously, though, we know we know it's weird out there, and we're just very thrilled that you're still listening to us and that you're writing in, and we'll happily uh, read and respond to your emails uh, all the damn time. Yeah, yeah. So thank you, everybody, uh, once again. If you want to write to us, whether you've done it before or you've never had the opportunity, uh, letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. We'll talk about anything you want. We try to read everything. We don't have time to read everything, but we try. Uh, we, and we, we try to. We do get a lot of letters. We, we try to read a lot. Uh, we I try to get 
people have actually asked about this. I try to read like some older letters, some newer letters, mm-hmm. try to find a lot of people that I haven't read from before. Yeah. Um, if you write in a lot, we do read them and we do appreciate that. Mm-hmm. And we'll get to the letters from time to time. But we want to yeah, spread we, it out. We, we want to spread it out. Yeah, so many yeah, voices if, as possible. If you don't hear your letter, uh, we apologize. If you yeah. really want us to read it on the show, then just, you know, bug us on Twitter. Uh, give or us or a nudge. If it's important, if it's like really important that it gets read before yeah. a certain time, by all means, give us a nudge or maybe put like, uh, timely or something mm. in the header that might help a little but yeah give us a nudge on Twitter or something if you want to follow us on Twitter uh, we are at Critic Acclaim I am at William Bibiani I'm at Whitney Seibold and of course we have a Patreon patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network where we have a ton of exclusive content just for you we have uh, a lot of episodes in a backlog if you just want like a ton of new content right away you can just subscribe we have uh, the new Firefly podcast out of gas uh, we're like five episodes into that right now. We're doing every single episode of Firefly and the movie and the comic book, if I can track it down, mm. given everything going on. Um, we've got uh, Not on Disney Plus, where we're talking about uh, mostly TV movies and miniseries that Disney is sweeping under the rug. Uh, we have Only the Best, where we talk about uh, every Best Picture nominee ever, which hopefully we can record another episode of that tomorrow. Uh, soon, as soon as soon as I can get to it. Okay. Still, still got like about three films to watch. Still three films to watch. Okay. As soon as we can. Uh, we have All Our Yesterdays. We're reviewing every single episode of Star Trek. We're a whole season into that. Huge backlog. ton of stuff. And uh, we got commentary tracks and more besides so uh thank you everybody who was a patron of course you were helping to keep the show going we literally couldn't do this without you and in my case i couldn't fill the refrigerator without you so thank you very much um and uh yeah thank you very much for being fans and for listening we really 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 appreciate it uh so have a great week or if you listen to all of our podcasts we'll see you tomorrow because we put out a lot of them uh sincerely yours dibs and whitney